for our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we reopen your holy word, we ask with great earnest that it will run and be exalted, that it will be proclaimed and heard without anything in any of us encumbering the reception thereof, but that effectually by the convincing power of the blessed spirit, we trust in you, Father, through Christ Jesus, our Lord, by his mediation and on account of his merits, that we will receive your word of truth today. That for your people it will be to their sanctification and for those who are without Christ. May it be this day to their salvation. These things we pray and ask for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ in his name. We pray. Amen. I invite you this morning to take God's word and let's turn to the gospel according to John. John chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 60 through 66. 60 through 66 of John chapter 6. As we consider... This morning, what I have entitled, Exposing Fair Weather Faith. Exposing Fair Weather Faith. John chapter 6, starting at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, sufficient, certain Word of God. Have you ever had the unpleasant and even hurtful experience of a fair weather friend? This old English idiom originating from the 17th century was related to what was called a fair weather sailor who could only sail a ship when the weather was good. If the weather was trying, though, such a sailor was nowhere to be found. Adopting this to a friend, it carried more connotations. A fair-weather friend is someone who will hang with you only when your circumstances 
are appealing and attractive. If your life ends up in a great trial of sorts, then don't count on this person to be anywhere near. They only want your company when it's all sunshine with no chance of rain. Furthermore, a fair-weather friend is that person whose availability to you is strictly when it's advantageous to them. Don't ever rely on this person to have any interest in your needs. Their friendship with you, listen, it goes only as far as your fellowship and resources can meet their needs and theirs only. A fair-weather friend, therefore, is selfish and thereby self-serving when it comes to how they relate to you. They are not and never will be a true friend. And like fair-weather friends, the visible church has its share of what could be called a fair-weather disciple. And it is this kind of person that our study this morning in John chapter 6 brings to our attention. Contextually and historically speaking, John chapter 6 verses 60 through 66 finds us at the conclusion of our Lord's Galilean ministry. We therefore have in these verses the recorded outcome of the labors of Jesus, the labors he carried out in this mountainous region of northern Israel. It is here in Galilee where Jesus turned water into wine. It is here where he healed a nobleman's son without so much as seeing him. And it is here where Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 plus Jews. And each of these miracles, not only was our Lord's mission given accreditation, but his deity as God incarnate was made manifest as well to witness such miracle-working power which no one had ever seen or even performed left no room for unbelief among the multitudes. But with the undeniable miracles, there was also the astonishing message Jesus gave, where without hesitation he declared himself as the bread of life. Here Jesus turned the attention of his hearers to look to him alone through whom they would have life eternal and without whom they would never gain such life. But to receive eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord also made it clear that such an act of faith was a gift from God whereby the sinner is effectually drawn to Christ by God the Father who gave this sinner to his Son from eternity. This was the message Jesus delivered to these Galilean Jews. But at the end of this ministry in Galilee... How do you suppose the Jews responded? What do you think was the resulting conduct of these Jews who had followed Jesus and, listen, even appeared to be eager to be his disciple? In fact, the Apostle John identifies these Jews as disciples of Jesus right here in our text in verses 60 and 66. They are called his disciples. So they followed Jesus, but how true... How sincere were they as his followers? The old English proverb, all that glitters is not gold, fits quite well in answer to this question. As well-meaning and promising as these Jews may have appeared on the surface as true disciples of Jesus, 
Yet it soon became evident how actuated they were by motives of an earthly and fleshly nature. Very few of these Jews gave any proof that they had any real sense of spiritual need. Elaborating on this fact with its very pathetic conclusion, A.W. Pink gave this observation. Here in Galilee, the crowds had followed him. For a brief season, he was their popular idol. And yet few of them manifested any signs that their consciences were stirred or their hearts exercised. Fewer still understood the real purport of his mission. And now that he had declared it, now that he had pressed upon them their spiritual need, they were offended. Many who had posed as his disciples turned back and walked no more with him. And so here in John chapter 6, verses 60 through 66, we have a real picture of what can be called a fair-weather disciple. And with such a disciple before us, I want us to examine their fair-weather faith, which can be seen in three different ways from our text. First, their faith is incredulous. Second, it is carnal. And third, it is fugacious. To begin with, then, let's consider the first rate of fair-weather faith. It is incredulous. Reading verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? What a polar opposite change in these Jews who were following Jesus. Back in verses 14 and 15 here in John 6, they were acclaiming him as the prophet who is to come into the world, reflecting the promise of Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, and even pursued to make him king. And then in verse 24, the following day after this pursuit, John tells us that these Jews were seeking Jesus. But now, here in verse 60, they betray their faith as something other than a genuine, obedient commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord. What kind of a faith appeared auspicious along the way now revealed its true colors as adverse to who Jesus really is and what he demands from those who follow him. And the first trait we see about their faith is how incredulous it proved to be. They murmured. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The term translated hard comes from a Greek word that means dried or rough. It came to be used figuratively as something harsh and thereby hard to accept. Adding to this, when the Jews then said, who can listen to it? The verb used for listen means to hear with appreciation, to hear with acceptance. Moreover, this verb, listen, is translated as a present tense. So that what these Jews are saying more literally, who can ever accept this teaching? Who can ever accept this teaching? The problem then with these so-called disciples of Jesus, and listen to this, it wasn't that they couldn't understand his words, but rather 
they refused to accept them. They refused to trust and believe what Jesus was saying as the truth. His claims and demands were beyond what they were willing to believe and yield obedience to. The bottom line was this. Jesus offended them. He offended them. On this point, D.A. Carson is very helpful as he answers this question. What was it that offended their sensibilities? Carson answered this question in four ways. He wrote this. Judging by the preceding discourse, there were four features in Jesus' word at which they took umbrage. First, they were more interested in food, political messianism, and manipulative miracles than in the spiritual realities to which the feeding miracle had pointed. Number two, they were unprepared to relinquish their own assumed sovereign authority, even in matters religious, and therefore prove themselves incapable of genuine faith. Number three, in particular, they were offended at the claims Jesus advanced, claiming to be greater than Moses, uniquely sent by God and authorized to give life. And finally, the extended metaphor of the bread is itself offensive to them, especially when it assaults clear taboos and becomes a matter of eating flesh and drinking blood. So then their reaction to what Jesus proclaimed to them manifested a faith that was no real faith. It was a faith There was really no faith. Their words here in verse 60 show distrust, disbelief, and unwillingness to receive and submit to Jesus' claims as, as he called to trust them for eternal life. The fact is, to these fair were the disciples, and listen to this, what they heard Jesus say was so irreconcilable to their own views that they would not receive our Lord's words as the truth. Their faith, therefore, was incredulous. Now let me ask you, do we see this kind of faith in churches today? Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. We see it, for instance, when God's servant faithfully delivers God's word and the reaction of many in the congregation is how hard this teaching is to accept. But the only reason they find the truth of God's word offensive is because it conflicts with what they think is right and contravenes the traditions of their church customs. So while they wear the name of Christian on their sleeve, yet their faith doesn't follow Christ, but their own religion, trusting in their own version of the Savior they think Jesus should be. Such is the incredulous faith of a fair-weather disciple. But not only is their faith incredulous, in the second place we also notice the faith of a fair-weather disciple is carnal. It is carnal, reading verses 61 through 65. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. 
The words that I have spoken to you are spirit in life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The key statement out of this entire passage is in verse 63, where Jesus asserts, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. In this singular declaration, the faith of these fair-weather disciples is exposed as carnal or fleshly. As these Galilean Jews followed Jesus, they did so, understand this, they did so relying on what they could do to be right with God. So, for instance, they trusted in their political maneuvering to make Jesus king and usher in what they thought would be the Messiah's advent, the advent they would like. When Jesus told them not to work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which Jesus said he would give to them since God the Father had set his seal on Jesus, their response was, what must we do to do the works of God? What must we do? You see, this was their problem. They relied for everything on the power of their flesh. There stands the Son of God incarnate offering them eternal life by believing on Him, trusting what He alone can do, and yet their response is, what must we do? What must we do? Their faith is carnal. They have no genuine trust in Jesus Christ to save them, but all their support and dependence for eternal life is fixed on their flesh. And since their flesh is the object of their faith and not Jesus, then his words of eternal life are not comforting, but they are offensive. So Jesus says to them, do you take offense at this? Do you take offense at this? Our Lord doesn't pose this question because, because he needs to, to know if they're offended. This, this isn't an inquiry for information. The question is rhetorical. Jesus poses the question to make a point of exposure concerning their faith. He knew they were offended. He knew they were offended, even though they weren't addressing him directly. But as John tells us in verse 64, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Speaking, of course, of Judas Iscariot. He read their hearts with perfect knowledge since he is omniscient God incarnate. So then his question was a matter of exposing their superficial faith in him and thereby revealing the true object of where their trust landed, namely on their flesh. But the way in which we see Jesus exposing the carnal faith of these fair-weather disciples is by contending that receiving him and the eternal life he gives comes as the result 
of what God does, not what man does. So Jesus says in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Can our Lord be any more blunt than this? I mean, honestly, can He be any more straightforward than this? It is the Spirit who gives life. By the divine agency of the Holy Spirit comes life. That is divine life to make alive and raise sinners out of their spiritual death in sin. Only by the Spirit can such life proceed. The flesh, on the other hand, Jesus says, is no help at all. Now what is meant by the flesh here? Well, the flesh here is fallen human nature. It represents men and women as they are in sin, enslaved to their passions and desires that oppose God at every turn. It is due to this state of human nature and sin that God's Word tells us, for instance, in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, that is, who spiritually understands the truth of God. And there's none who even seeks after God. This is the human race in all its carnality as sinners. Therefore, when it comes to gaining eternal life, gaining a right standing with God, the Lord makes it perfectly clear. The flesh is no help at all. It is no help at all. The flesh will not and cannot avail and succeed at gaining God's acceptance. All, listen, all the flesh can do, all it can do, is make up its own religion, carve out its own path to God, and come up with its own version of salvation. That's all the flesh can do. But what will be the result of all this carnal creativity? The result will be damnation instead of salvation. Why? Because the flesh is no help at all. No, it is the Spirit who gives life. But this is not all our Lord asserts. He goes on here still in verse 63. Jesus says, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The words that I have spoken to you. Where the Spirit of God is the divine agent in bringing salvation. The Word of God is the divine instrument working by the Spirit's power to that same end. So we read in Romans 10, 17, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. In James 1, 18, we read that by God's own will, He brought us forth to salvation by the word of truth. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, we're assured that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. What's the point? The point is, saving faith comes by both the spirit of God and the word of God. And so not to receive what Jesus says, but reject his word as these Galilean Jews were doing is to betray a faith 
that is both carnal and incredulous. In short, these Galilean Jews manifested at the end of our Lord's ministry rank unbelief. Their faith was not true. It was not true. But did their unbelief shake Jesus up? Did this hard reality get our Lord down? No, not at all. In verse 64, look at what he says. But there are some of you who do not believe. There are some of you who do not believe. He knew his words of life were not reaching every single person in his presence. He knew that. And the ultimate reason not everyone were coming to him in faith is because of what he declares to them as his closing words. Look at verse 65. In verse 65, Jesus says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Do these words sound familiar? They should. They should. It's what Jesus said back in verse 44, but with a slight variation. In John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now what is so significant about these words in verse 65 is the imperfect tense behind this is why I told you. This is why I told you. That's translated from an imperfect tense. It is, so it is impossible for anyone to come savingly to Christ without the Father giving them the grace to do so. This truth of sovereign grace in the salvation of sinners is what Jesus repeatedly taught throughout his ministry. So he says then, and here's more of the Greek rendering of the imperfect tense, this is why I have kept on telling you. I have kept on telling you. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. To these unbelieving Jews, Jesus persistently, time and again, pressed on them this truth. Over and over and over again. He preached this. He taught this. The great sense of these words in verse 65 is this. No one has the ability... No one has the power in themselves, all on their own, to come to me. It's impossible. If left to yourself, you will choose your sin over me without fail or hesitation. Therefore, if anyone is to come to me, it has to be by what my Father works in His grace. Otherwise, no one will come. And in the face of this repeated truth, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as to the failure of the flesh to save reverberates 
in the hearing of every sinner, of every sinner who foolishly thinks they can save themselves. But in the context of John chapter 6, this truth exposes the faith of the fair-weather disciple as carnal in every way. Understand that. How they heard Jesus, how they looked at Jesus, what they thought of Jesus, it was all carnal. This is why Jesus says in verse 62, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The context of this question is connected to how offended they were over his sermon. But if they took issue with his discourse, much more would they stumble over actually seeing him return to the glory of his true home. Why is that? It's because all the flesh can see is flesh. All the flesh can see is flesh. Carnal faith cannot see the glory of who Jesus Christ truly is, even if, even if they beheld his ascension back to the Father. Wow. <laughs> but at the end of it all, the faith of a fair weather disciple is not just carnal or incredulous. At the very last, we see here in our text, it is fugacious. It is fugacious. Reading verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Wow. What a conclusion to the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. If he had only done what the church growth experts had told him to do. These initial sanguine disciples who sought him relentlessly now turned and abandoned what faith they claimed deserting Jesus for good. When we read here the words, after this, that can be better rendered from this time or as a result of this. There was no more pretense to their faith. There was no more posturing to be something they were not. There was no more faking what they appeared to be as a disciple of Jesus. As one New Testament scholar remarked at this verse, what they wanted, Jesus would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. And so as a result of this, what did they do? What does the Apostle John tell us? They turned back and no longer walked with him. Those words are pregnant with meaning. By turning back and no longer walking with Jesus, understand this, they, they not only left the synagogue where Jesus was teaching, it was so much more than that. 
they departed from everything discipleship means as a follower of Christ. They wanted no attachment to him in the least. They were done with Jesus. They were done. It's over. This was a full-scale rejection of God's eternal Son made flesh. That's what the Bible calls apostasy. They could not take and accept what he preached and taught. His words were so offensive that whatever life they thought they had with him, they threw it all away. Getting right down to it, they could not bear the truth of the gospel because, listen, because they would not follow Jesus on his terms. They would not follow him on his terms. They wanted salvation their way, not God's way. And so as fair-weather disciples, they proved their faith to be, in the end, fugacious. Their faith was passing, not permanent. It disappeared, never to be seen again, because it wasn't true. It wasn't saving, and therefore it did not persevere. And such is the faith of all those who attach themselves to Jesus for the wrong reasons. And beloved, our churches are full of such fair-weather disciples like this. Full of them. Well, in closing this very somber, searching and sobering study from John 6, I want to leave you this morning with two personal questions for self-examination. I could have come up with many more. In fact, I had many more. But we would have been here for a while. Two will suffice. But what these two questions are getting at is this one bigger, larger question. Is our faith in Jesus a fair-weather faith or is it true saving faith? Okay? That's the larger question. But let me leave you with these two in particular. And I do have them printed in your bulletin so you can follow right along to see where I'm going. Question number one. Do you accept and believe the Bible as God's word in full? Or do you deny it? Casting aspersions on it because it offends you by what it reveals and teaches. Now please understand. I'm not asking you. I'm not asking you if you understand everything God's word teaches. That is not the question here. The question is not about what you understand. No. The question is. Do you accept this, all of it, do you accept it as the truth? Whether you understand it or not, do you accept it all for what it is in truth? 
What it is in truth? What is it? The breathed out word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture. Pan grafe, all the writings are theopneustos, breathed out by God. All of it. From the contents to the maps, well, we can leave that out. But you know what I'm saying. All of it. Breathed out by God. So here's the question then. Are you committed to everything it teaches? Everything? And do, do you submit your life to it as the Word of God? Is God's Word the only rule? The only rule for what you believe and how you live? The only rule? I'm going to ask a question like this. I ask a question like this because there are so many people who populate local churches who sit every Sunday in church pews or church chairs, if you're in one of those more modernized churches, and they do not accept the word of God as true. First two churches I pastored were just like that. They were, they were that. In fact, the, listen, the revolt of those two churches, the revolt, the revolt was not against me personally. The revolt was against this, the word of God. And in the second church I pastored, they were brazen enough, they were bold enough to say it to my face what they really believed their problem was with God's word they didn't like what it said they didn't like what it taught and what it revealed and they just flat out said I don't believe that's true were they any different than the Galilean Jews no different no different so, again, the leading question here is, do you accept and believe the Bible is God's word in full, in full, or do you deny it, casting aspersions on it, because it offends you by what it reveals and teaches? Here's the second question. Is the foundation of all your confidence and hope that God accepts you resting entirely on Jesus Christ and his saving work or are you relying on what you can do to save yourself? So let me add a few more questions to this leading question. Whose righteousness are you counting on to make you right with God? Whose Whose righteousness are you counting on to make you right with God? Is it your righteousness? Or is it the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Which is it? Which is it? Are you like the man who said to me many years ago that when he faces God in the judgment that he feels pretty good of how the outcome is going to be because he believes that his good deeds will outweigh his bad deeds? 
Whose righteousness is that man counting on? His. His. Let me give you another question. Where does your faith lodge itself? Where does your faith find its home for salvation from your sins and reconciliation with God? Is it in Jesus Christ alone? Alone. Or is it with you? You need to remember this, beloved. Fair weather faith doesn't last. It doesn't last. It's not permanent. If you have fair weather faith, then there will come a day when like the Galilean Jews, you will turn from Jesus and you will follow him no more because your faith was never genuine to begin with. In fact, it will be like the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us. Why? Because they never really were of us. Had they been of us, John says, they would have remained with us. But because they were not of us, what do they do? They left. They departed. So what then do I say here at the very end? I say to all of you, trust Jesus Christ alone. Trust him now. Trust him with true faith that takes him at his word believing everything he has said and promised as the one and only mediator between God and man, the one and only Savior who has the power to rescue your soul from the condemnation it deserves as a sinner. Do not doubt him any longer. The Word of God says, Whoever believes in Jesus Christ shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do you take God at his word? Do you trust him with the whole of your heart? Don't be a fair weather disciple. Be a true disciple. Follow Christ with all that you are, trusting him for all that he is as Lord, Savior, Redeemer, as King. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, a very sobering word of truth today, Lord, coming from your Holy Scriptures. What a sombering narrative we have recorded in your word of these Galilean Jews. These people, Father, that we recognize are no different than so many, many people who populate so many local churches are those who once did and have left and departed from the faith for good. Heavenly Father, we plead with you in this great hour. Lord, let none of us be self-deceived. If we are among the fair-weather disciples, 
then, Lord, we pray earnestly that you would save us to the uttermost, that you will call us out of the darkness of that unbelief into your marvelous light where we close truly and savingly with Jesus Christ and do so for good and to the end. But Father, we also pray that for those of us that are true disciples of the Lord Jesus who have genuinely been born again by the Spirit of God, we just simply plead with you today for greater sanctification for surely, Lord, we have so much more growing and maturing to do. Our commitment to Christ still needs to grow and mature and improve so much more each and every day. And so we trust in you for the power and the grace that you would work in us to that holy end that we would continue to learn what it means to be faithful to Christ Jesus our Lord in every way and in every turn, growing up more and more in him. For his sake and in his name, we ask these things, blessed Father. Amen.